Good morning. As uh, Luke was saying there, it's neat how God um, sometimes ties it all together. Um, first of all, trusting God in our morning, morning study, um, which there's four books left back there. So if you don't have a book for the morning, way through, but it's never too late to uh, hop in there. Uh, Aaron led us in that this morning, and uh, I believe next week we'll continue in that on chapter 8 or somewhere in there. Um, so pick up a book, if you haven't been through that study, about trusting God, and then uh, the songs today and, and even the call to worship and even the scripture reading um, all tie together with uh, what we'll be looking at today from Psalm 77. So turning your Bibles to Psalm 77. Psalm 77, we've been uh, working our way through the Psalms of Asaph as I've had a chance to preach. Um, And there's many Psalms of Asaph, uh, there's a few other Psalms of Asaph throughout the Psalms, but the main ones, the main chunk is uh, Psalm 73 through 83. So Luke tied that all uh, nicely together with uh, Psalm 73, reading the the last two verses of that about... um, uh, about how the psalmist, after he had seen that, uh, you know, the world truly was in slippery places, he turned uh, to God and said, God, you are my hope. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 77, and I've titled this, I Will Remember. But if you wanted to boil the psalm that we'll be looking at today into one sentence, so if all you get from this message, if you fall asleep, if all you get is this next sentence, and then you go home and read the psalm on your own, it'll, it'll be a, a good summary, okay? So, when God seems distant, remember his steadfast love through his powerful works. When God seems distant, remember his steadfast love through his powerful works. Or you could put the word, trust his steadfast love through his powerful works. You could uh, put that in there. There's many ways you can say it, but... Um, that'd be kind of the summary of today's uh, passage. All right, let's uh, pray as we get started. Dear God, you are so gracious, you are so powerful, and yet you love us. God, the songs we sang today point us to the ultimate means of us receiving that love. Um, through Christ on the cross. God, you didn't um, have to give us grace, but you are a gracious and a compassionate God, and so you did. And God, thank you that you loved us even while we were shaking our fist in your face, even while we were yet sinners, and Christ died for us. Christ loved us, you loved us, and then you've given us the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for all these, these good mercies that we just sang about. That when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God, help us as we look at your word now. Uh, eliminate distractions. Uh, the little kids at our feet uh, or beside us. The concerns from this past week. The um, anxiety for the next week. Lay those uh, sins aside uh, from our minds uh, unless they apply and we can apply your word directly to them. God, just help us to be able to focus on your word 
help me as a speaker. I am, I am feeble, I'm weak, um, but use me to uh, convey your word today uh, so that the hearers here will be edified. Help us not just to hear, but to go out and do it uh, this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when God seems distant, remember his steadfast love through his powerful works. Let's read this psalm. And as we read this psalm, I'm going to want you to pay attention to a couple things. So first of all, if you have an ESV, it makes it really easy to find these words, okay? If you have ESV, look for the three selahs. And then... um, I mean, they're in there in the other translations too, but the ESV puts them right over there. So look for the three words, uh, Selah, and then be looking in verse 3, 6, 11, and 12 for reoccurring verbs. These reoccurring verbs are remember and meditate, and they go hand in hand. So let's start in, verse, in the introduction here. It says, uh, to the choir master, according to Jedithan, a psalm of Asaph. Verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. And meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So did you see the, first, did you see the uh, three selahs? Awesome. Did you see the three times where it was remember and meditate? Well, actually four, but three sections of verses? Good. So those are kind of some key words, okay? The word selah 
is used in Psalms, and I should have mentioned this last week because there was a C letter too in, in that Psalm, and I kind of skimmed over it or skipped over it. Um, if you see the word Selah, um, there's differing uh, ways that it can be taken, but uh, one good overall view is that a Selah means to pause and pay attention because it's kind of the end of one thought, and then it's going to go into another thought. And as, if you see from the Psalm, and as we get, work through it, each Psalm, it kind of has a transition. Um, and then, um, so let's go back to the intro. It says, to the choir master, according to Jedithan. Now, Jedithan was another musician in the temple uh, who was kind of a contemporary of Asaph. So a way that this, could be, this uh, title could be taken is that Asaph was writing it, and he was writing it according to the musical style of Jedithan. So a psalm to, um, uh, to the choir master, according to Jedithan, would be maybe according to uh, his style of music. And if you're curious, Jedithan is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 16.41 and 1 Chronicles 25.1-3. We looked at last week, Psalm 76. Remember, God is renowned. God is glorious and majestic. God is to be feared because of his judgment. And God is to be praised because of his sovereignty. So remember all of those things as we go into today because one of, a lot of the things I covered last week were God's works. And today we're told to remember God's works. The psalm has 20 verses. I've broken it down quite simply into verses 1 through 9 are the problem. When God seems distant or we are weary. So verses 1 through 9, God seems distant or we are weary. And then verses 10 through 12 um, are the solution, which is to remember God's works. Remember God's works from verses 10 through 20. So you can see in these first few verses, the psalmist is vexed. He is in a state of discouragement. He's melancholic, as some people would call it, or inconsolable. Um, there's a lot of other words you could describe this as. We're not told what the reason is for his troubled soul, as uh, verse 2 says, my trouble. Um, but from the context, it seems to be that it may be from his sin. Um, we'll see that a little later on uh, where I got that from. How many of you ever have a discouraged state, a state of despair? You're melancholic. I had, I had a, a, an evening this past week where I had needed to apply uh, this psalm. So many of us have times like this in our lives where nothing can encourage you, um, and oftentimes the last thing we do is the thing we should do first, and that is crying aloud to God. And that's what this psalmist does here. He cries aloud to God, aloud to God, and even in the first verse, he gives himself some hope and says, he will hear me. But then in the next few verses, you see where he doesn't feel like God is hearing him. Sometimes when we are in this melancholic or discouraged state of despair, we're inconsolable, we sometimes need to just simply pray, God, give me the faith to pray. Because we, on our own, don't want to pray, and we don't want to have the faith to pray. We don't want to believe that God can turn that situation around. 
And then another question to ask as we, as we look at these verses is, how often is our first response not to turn to God and not to look inside of ourselves, but to look to something else in this world to satisfy us? We binge eat, we binge watch, we binge scroll. We turn to something in this world that will not satisfy. But this psalm is descriptive or prescriptive of what we should do. We should pray to God who will hear us. Furthermore, we know that Christ is our mediator. We've sung about that today. Christ is our mediator before us to God, before the throne of God above. And then another thing, how often do we complain to other believers or sometimes unbelievers, maybe unbelieving coworkers or some random person we see in the store or gas station? How often do we complain to them before we complain to God? The psalmist, many psalms, have a similar view of discouragement and then looking to God. And, and that's helpful for us because we can tend to look at people in the Bible as heroes. The, Bible, the people in the Bible are not heroes. I hate to break it to you. They're not, except for one who is uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are the heroes. <clears throat> um, so, anyway, the psalmists, though, give us a good look at how we can, in these melancholic states, these discouraged states, um, look to God. So first of all, he says he cries aloud to God, and he has the confidence that God will hear him, even though he doesn't feel like it. And we often don't feel like God hears us. We often don't feel like praying, but we need to. Verse 2 kind of expounds on this and says, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord, and in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. This is kind of just the position of prayer is uh, what many of the commentators uh, describe this as his hand is stretched out. In other words, he, he, he was praying all night long and all day long, and he was not receiving an answer from God. And therefore, his soul refuses to be comforted. How often do we feel in our souls that we will not be comforted? Even if your wife or your friend or your husband tries to comfort you, you're like, no, I don't want to be comforted. Um, that is sometimes me. And then when, when I remember God, the psalmist says, I moan when I meditate, my spirit faints. So this is the first time we see this theme of remember and meditate. And this, this remember and meditate doesn't help the psalmist. He remembers God and he moans. He, meditate, he meditates, but his spirit faints. And it's not really clear uh, why. Um, some of the... Um, commentators suggested that it was because, because of maybe the psalmist's sin or his distance from God that he, f he remembered God and was like, well, God's a judge, God's all holy, so I'm not sure that I want to meditate on this God. And so that's why he moaned. It could possibly be um, because the psalmist feels that God has answered and been near in the past, but now seems distant. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. And you might say, wow, that's not a very kind God to hold someone's eyes, eyelids open. But think about it this way. God can keep us awake and or, he, and or he can take us through times of discouragement so that we will find him as sufficient as we're going to see. I'm giving away the ending, but that's okay. 
our conscience can sometimes keep us awake uh, so that we will confess our sin and look to Christ and believe in the forgiveness that Christ gives. Or God could simply keep us awake so that we have no place to run for our energy, joy, or sustenance except for to him. And the psalmist says he's so troubled that he cannot speak. So then what does he do? He considers the days of old, the years long ago. He said, again, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So the psalmist thinks about what has happened in the past. He see, uh, um, but the psalmist is also looking internally, and it does not help him to get out of his despair by looking internally. His soul then makes a deep and diligent search in light of his troubled state. And these can be questions. Um, sorry, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. So the next few verses are going to be questions. And these can be questions that we can ask when we are discouraged because of life or because of our own shortcomings or sins. One commentator calls these next uh, six questions, three verses, powerful rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question is what? A question when you ask it and you don't mean for somebody to answer. I didn't mean for just a couple people to raise their hand earlier about a discouraged state. It was kind of a rhetorical question to just get us all thinking because I think most of us in some way or another have discouraged states. So these next few verses, verses 7 through 9 that we're going to see, are questions that if they're answered yes, then we would have a whimsical, non-trustworthy God who we would not want to run to. If these questions are answered yes, then we would have a whimsical, non-trustworthy God who who we would not want to run to. So what are these questions? Will the Lord spurn forever? Spurn means to reject, or the King James Version says to cast off. Or God, will you never again be favorable? Will you never again help your chosen people? Verse 8, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? If you answer any of those yes, you don't have a trustworthy God. So he's asking them rhetorically, and we sometimes ask them those questions, whether we think through them uh, as succinctly or not, um, we often think those questions in our own heads. Verse 8, notice how he says, steadfast love forever ceased. God's love is either steadfast or it ceases. Uh, The Hebrew word for this is chesed or hesed uh, for steadfast love. And uh, one commentator said half the word's occurrences are in the Psalms. So half the times where we see that God is a God of steadfast love are in the Psalms and where it is closely associated with God. And furthermore, this is the word or the phrase, two words, that God first uses to describe himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. So let's turn there, Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. This is, this is, this is some powerful verses. 
Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. To give kind of the context, um, remember that uh, Moses had broken the tablets that God had, the first tablets that God had given him because of his anger at uh, the people's uh, sin with the golden calves. And in, in chapter 34, um, God tells Moses to cut himself two new tablets of stone like the first ones, and God will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. So Moses cut them. The Lord descends into the cloud uh, that's on Mount Sinai and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So verse, verse 5, sorry. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And notice these, these word lords, if you look in your Bible, they're all capital letters. So that's the word for Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, so Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, and how does God describe himself here? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So how does God describe himself? Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. These back to, hold your finger in in Exodus, okay? And then go back to Psalm 77. These questions that the psalmist is asking directly tie to Exodus 34. Will he reject us? Well, these are his covenant people. Will he never again be favorable? Again, they are his covenant people. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? God describes himself as having steadfast love and being steadfast love, keeping it for thousands. Are his promises at an end for all time? In verse 6 again of of, uh, Exodus 34, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Well, again, at the beginning it said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? He's merciful. He's slow to anger. So God is a God of steadfast love. He is a merciful, gracious, compassionate, faithful and forgiving God. We also see Chesed, or Hesed, in Psalm 136, where, remember, every verse ends in, his steadfast love endures forever. And no doubt, the psalmist asking these questions and crying aloud to God and saying these things out loud, how many times do we say something out loud and then it's like, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense, or that doesn't sound right, or that's not how it works. Um, there are sometimes uh, pilots on, in bush countries. Um, I'm a pilot, so for those of you who didn't know, there's sometimes pilots in bush countries who don't have a lot of the, uh, the technology we do here. So for winds and stuff, it can be a little uh, crazy and interesting. And so one of the things they'll have to do if they're going into a strip where there's uh, some risk is they'll have to talk it out loud to another pilot to give, them, to give the other pilot his plan of how he's going to do this. 
And if him talking it out makes him talk himself out of it, then they don't do it. And so that's one of the means that they uh, assess, assess and uh, mitigate risk in uh, those bush countries uh, as being pilots. So the psalmist here, he talks these questions, these rhetorical, powerful rhetorical questions out loud to God, and then he's like, oh yeah. So here in a minute, we're going to look at verse 10, and you're going to see at the end of verse 9, there's a sila, and then um, he's going to switch his mindset in the last uh, 10 verses of the psalm. Uh, gracious and compassionate in verse 9, just another quick note on that. These are also two characteristics of God that are repeated throughout the Exodus and uh, Old Testament narrative. If you just Google uh, verses about God as gracious and compassionate, you'll find article after article that that talks about them. And like the one link I clicked on was 51 verses about God being compassionate, and only like the last five were in the New Testament. So most of the time when it's talking about God being gracious and compassionate, it's with his people, his covenant people, Israel, and um, how he showed that to them in the Old Testament. So don't let the world trick you into thinking that the Old Testament God wasn't loving and the New Testament God is loving. We see God's covenant-keeping, steadfast love, graciousness and compassion and mercy and faithfulness throughout the Old Testament in spite of the people of Israel's sin and unfaithfulness. So we see here in these, these first nine verses um, kind of a fallen condition focus, as it's, as it's called. And that fallen condition focus is that we forget that we are not faithful, and we forget that God is faithful. Let me say that one more time. We forget that we are not faithful, and we forget that God is faithful. We sometimes switch that around and think that we're the, we're the ones in the right, and God is the one in the wrong. Romans 3, verses 3 through 4. Mark this one down if you're taking notes. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So when we're unfaithful, God is still faithful. God is not going to cease being God. Remember that at the root of all of our sins, we doubt or do not believe some of these same things, these six rhetorical questions. When we sin, we are not believing one of those about God. We don't believe that God is good. So what do we need to do today? We need to turn to the solution, which is to remember God's works in verses 10 through 20. The psalmist, uh, one commentator says, the psalmist hoped an appeal to the Lord's faithful love would persuade God to respond to the crisis, whatever the crisis was that's not clearly spelled out to us. He used language normally associated with the exodus from Egypt, which we're going to see, and the appearance of God at Sinai, again with his covenant, the God with his covenant people. So let me just kind of summarize Exodus because it's, it's so clearly um, alluded to in these next 10 verses um, so let's just summarize the book of Exodus, okay, in like five, in maybe two minutes, okay? So Exodus 1 through 6, new Pharaoh, so not the Pharaoh that knew Joseph, a new Pharaoh has come into control, into rule. 
and he oppresses the people of Israel. Remember, he said, make your bricks and no more straw and don't give them, don't give them anything to help. Um, he oppressed the people of Israel. Also in the first six verses, you see Moses' birth and his calling um, to, to lead the people of Israel. Verses, uh, not verse, chapter 7 through 12, you see the 10 plagues and the institution of the Passover. And then you think the book of Exodus is about the Exodus, and it is, but they don't actually exit or leave Egypt until chapter 12. And then um, chapter 14, they cross the Red Sea. Chapter 15, which we're going to look at in part, is uh, the Song of Moses. Remember when they rejoice about what God had done for them in that great deliverance at the Red Sea, uh, and he swallowed up the, uh, the chariots. And then chapters 16 through 18, they start to figure out life in the desert, right? Where's, where's food? Where's water? God gives them manna. He gives them water. Uh, chapters 19 through 33, they park at Mount Sinai, and uh, they receive the Ten Commandments. God comes down to the mountain, as we're going to see, with thunder and lightning. And um, he also gives them the covenant about his people, how he's going to be their steadfast, love, loving God. And they say, yeah, we'll do all that you say. And then also in those chapters, what do we see? They worship the two golden calves. And then chapters 34 through 40, um, God gives uh, Moses new tablets. He renews the covenant, even though he hadn't broken his side. God renews the covenant, and uh, he... He's already given them instructions in 19 through 33. As part of the Ten Commandments, he gave them uh, instructions on how to build the ark, the tabernacle, the stuff in it. But then in chapters 34 through 40, you see them making the ark and the tabernacle. All right, so just, just kind of uh, to summarize the book of Exodus, um, because now again here we're going to see uh, many allusions to items from the book of Exodus. So verse 10, the the after the second Selah, in verse 9, we see in verse 10, he says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now, some of you, if you have a NASB or a CSB, you read that verse and you're like, Matt, what are you reading? Because your, your version um, translates it slightly differently. Uh, if you had the NASB, it said, Then I said, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. A little different than, I'm going to appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So has God changed or has not God not changed? Um, I'm going to go with the ESV translation because that's what I was studying most of the week. Um, and we also know that if, God has if the psalmist is saying, has the, hand of the right, has, the, has the God of the right hand of the Most High changed, we know that God hasn't changed, right? God has is, is still kept his covenant. Um, God's right hand, uh, you'll see God's right hand showed in verse 10. Then in verse 15, if you skip down there with me, you see another anthropomorphic, where we give human terms to God, right? So God doesn't physically have a right hand. We haven't seen God. And he doesn't have a physical arm, but we are made in the image of God. Um, so anytime that you see the right hand of God or the arm of God, again, throughout the Old Testament, you can Google how many times these, these uh, words show up uh, in the Old Testament, but a ton of times, especially in Deuteronomy. Um, 
anytime that you see these, it represents the power by which he works, as one commentator said it. And then right after the Red Sea crossing, uh, the people of Israel sing the song of Moses. And so flip back to Exodus 15. We're going to read that, that song of Moses, because again, this psalm is, is making very strong allusions to it. So flip back to Exodus 15, and I'll try to point out some of the allusions as we get to them, and then we'll also reference them some as we go through the rest of the psalm. So they get through the sea, they see the, the deliverance, then Moses, verse 1 of chapter 15, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his horse he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, your right hand, O Lord, we're going to see it a second time, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, we're going to see God referenced as thunder and lightning later on in the psalm. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love. Again, a theme that we saw earlier from verses 7 through 9. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, which we just saw in in Psalm 77, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So in um, stepping back here to Psalm 77, if you look at um, verse 6, he said, Let me remember my song in the night. It could have been this song of Moses in Exodus 15 that he was remembering in the night. It's not clear from the, from the verse that it definitely is, but as we're going to see in these next few verses, all these strong allusions to Exodus 15 and uh, Exodus 19, it most likely could have been um, something that the psalmist had uh, prayed. So in verse uh, 6 of Exodus 15, we saw that God's right hand reoccurred multiple times, and then another time later on in Exodus 15. 
So in verses 11 through 12, back here in the psalm though, Psalm 77, verses 11 through 12, we see again the words remember and the words meditate, and they both occur twice. And notice though that the, what he's remembering and what he's meditating has kind of shifted. First, he kind of just vaguely remembered God. It made him moan. And then he remembered um, in verse 6, um, my song, let me meditate in my night, in my heart. But now notice in verse 11 and 12, what the object of his remembering and meditating is. It's not this vague God. It's not his problems, the psalmist's problems. It is now remembering the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will. And also notice how he's put the word I will in, in, in front So it wasn't a passive remembering. It wasn't a passive meditation. It was a purposeful, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So when we're depressed, when we're discouraged, when we feel like God is distant, we must make a conscious effort to remember God's mighty works to meditate on his mighty deeds, the things that he has done in the past. One way you can do this, um, Rachel and I have not been good at keeping it up, but one thing we started, uh, some other preacher recommended it, so I can't take the original credit, is start a journal of the things God provides for you and the things where it's like, wow, that was a God thing, and write those down in a journal. So that when you're discouraged and depressed, when you're having a low day, or when you're rejoicing and you're having a good day, you can go back to that journal and see how God was faithful to you. Um, So we see here the psalmist makes a conscious effort to change the object of what he's thinking about to the Lord's works. Verse 13, we see, "'Your way, O God, is holy.'" And here again, um, some translate that thy way is in the sanctuary, which would parallel Psalm 73 where, um, remember in Psalm 73, about halfway through the psalm, he goes to the sanctuary, and then that shifts his perspective to, um, to God being a good, a good and gracious God to him and a God who judges the sinful. But regardless, today here, your way, O God, is holy or set apart, God, you are set apart, and you are different than all of the small g gods. And then he says, what God is great like our God? And they, and they were basically singing that in Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, verse 11, it said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You see the parallels between Psalm 77 and Exodus 15. Another passage we looked at briefly last week, um, not necessarily these verses, but we had looked at Isaiah 40 about, uh, remember, the armies being a drop in the bucket compared to our God. Um, and in verse 18 of, some, of Isaiah 40, it says, To whom then will you liken our God, liken God, or what likeness compare with him? And then verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. Our God is like no other. He is a steadfast, loving, 
covenant-keeping God. In verse 13 of Exodus 15, it says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Then we get to verses 14 and 15. We see that God who works wonders, and the psalmist goes from general to specific, okay? So I've been talking about some specifics, but technically the psalmist has started here with the general things about God, and then he's going to get to specifics in verses 16 through 20. So he said, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. And then he says, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. We looked at many examples last week of God's might displayed in the Old Testament. So I encourage you, if you didn't, if you weren't here last week or you're not, you hadn't listened to the last week's yet, go back and listen to it, and you'll see God's um, power displayed through many examples from the Old Testament. Verse 15, you, you with your arm redeemed your people, redeemed, bought back. Remember, they were in the slave market. They were in a physical slave market uh, in Egypt, and he redeemed them, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So then we get to verses 16 through 20, and we're going to see some specific examples of um, God's works in uh, displaying his uh, steadfast love. And uh, again, these correlate back to Exodus 15, and Exodus 19, 15, which we just read. Exodus 19 is when Moses is at the, at the mountain of Sinai, and he's receiving the first 10 commandments, and um, there's thunder and lightning. So when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the sky gave, skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. What God is like ours. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. God wasn't there. He wasn't saying, hey, look at me doing this. His footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. So you could take that. Verses 15, where he says, uh, you've redeemed your people, um, the children of Jacob and Joseph, and then verses 16 through 20, you could take them as referring to the whole narrative of Exodus, which we've already talked about um, kind of in outline form. Verse 18 here is referring to God meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, 16 through 20, just so you can, I'll read that so you can just see the parallel On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So if God has done these things in the past, he will continue. And that's what got the the psalmist out of his depressed state, out of his troubled state. If God has shown his steadfast love through these things, through being a covenant-keeping God with, with the people of Israel, he will continue. So that's the context of the psalm 
in the Old Testament. Okay? We are not Israelites, and we are not the Jewish country. And so how do we apply these things to us today in the church? So I just wrote down briefly a few things. We're running out of time here. But what parallel things has he done for us as a church? He has given us salvation in Christ. And that should be the number one thing we should go to when we are discouraged. Number two, he's given us sanctification in the Holy Spirit. If you're discouraged, go read Romans 8. And he talks about that, the Holy Spirit, and about the, what we have in Christ. And then he's given us hope for future glorification. So what do we go out and do this week as a result of seeing this psalm? Number one, cry out to God with your problems. Go to God first. He has given us the church. We do need to share our burdens with others. We do need to help each other with burdens. But first, cry out to God with your problems. And then secondly, remember God's steadfast love through what he has done for you. Keep that journal of things God has done. If you, if you haven't, go back through your whole life, whether it's 30 years or 50 years or 10 years, go back through your life and write down what God has done for you. And then also remember salvation, glorification, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, and all the depths of the gospel, which we don't have time to go into today. But remember that as God's steadfast love for you to help you come out of those discouraged states. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your steadfast love, that your steadfast love endures forever. God, we are not faithful. We run from you. But God, you are faithful and you forgive us. You've given us Christ. You've loved us. Even while Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, which can be translated as while we were shaking our fist in your face. And God, as believing Christians today in the 21st century, even as believers, we still sometimes sin, often sin, and we still shake our fist at you. God, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, you're faithful, and your steadfast love, you keep steadfast love for thousands. And God, thank you that you do that for us today. Help us to meditate on these things as we go throughout our week. Help us to not live discouraged, but to live as loved Christians because of what you've done for us in the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.